For the Meat Poultry Podcast, I'm Ryan McCarthy, Digital Media Associate Editor. Supply chain troubles are going to continue to loom throughout the world and the meat industry heading into 2022. This reality makes existing difficulties of the agriculture supply chain persist. So how will processors and producers deal with this? To discuss some of those questions, we turn to Courtney Cowley, Senior Economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Courtney explains why the shortages and choke points are happening not only in the meat industry, but across the economy. She then talks about challenges for import and export markets right now in agriculture. Later on, Courtney describes a little bit about her career at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City and what she's heard from bankers across the industry. Courtney, I wanted to kind of start our supply chain conversation with what's kind of driving a lot of the supply chain issues that you've been seeing, uh, particularly with the agricultural industry right now? Yeah, so that's a a great question, Ryan. And it really, you know, we could go back to COVID-19, you know, which started February, 2020 uh, with outbreaks at different meatpacking plants. and, And I will get to that in a minute, but it really kind of goes a bit further back than that. Um, You know, you probably, many of your listeners probably know about the Holcomb fire in Kansas that occurred in 2019, um, which was a really large beef packing plant. And so obviously that plant was shut down and never reopened. And there were other situations similar to that that occurred over the previous couple of decades where um, because of excess capacity, beef packing plants were shut down and not reopen. So over time, um, here in in recent decades, we've had a situation where we've actually had, you know, cattle inventories have increased slightly uh, at the same time that we've seen capacity at meatpacking plants decline slightly. And and so then, um, so we we kind of, as the industry transitioned to, you know, just more just in time packing and processing, and also, you know, we've seen really strong strides in genetics of beef production, feed efficiency. So over time, the beef industry has become more productive and more efficient, meaning that we've been able to produce more beef with fewer cattle. So we actually haven't needed that you know, additional beef processing capacity because you know, we've needed to slaughter fewer head of cattle. But then COVID-19 occurs where we have outbreaks at meatpacking and processing plants uh, that either slowed operations at those plants as plants had to adjust and become more socially distanced or safer or just didn't have the uh, people there because they were homesick to process at the capacity that we were able to. So at one point in March of last year, uh, plant capacity in the United States was down by about 40 to 45 percent, and that is a a really big decline in processing capacity and caused some major disruptions. At the same time that restaurants were shut down, and we were seeing consumers buy meat in a different way, which also disrupted 
the system. So just disruptions at really kind of every point in the supply chain. So producers right. were facing much lower demand for their cattle because of reduced capacity at packing plants. As on the other end, retailers were seeing a much higher demand for their products, but lower supplies. So we were in a situation and really still are where we, you know, cattle producers are seeing lower prices for their cattle while consumers are paying higher prices for meat, particularly beef at the grocery store and at restaurants. And, you know, more recently um, we're seeing again, supply, supply chain disruptions that are very similar actually to what we saw last year in March and April, but this time around for a different reason. Um, and that is, you know, primarily attributed to tight labor markets. So just um, meat packers and processors not able to find the, the quantity of workers that they need uh, to be able to you know, produce at the level that they would like to or that the industry really needs right now. Right. And, and another big part of this is all of what's getting exported well out, outside the country. Can you d discuss a little bit about what you're seeing from facilities, ports, all those areas and the challenges that people are, are facing trying to get you know meat out of the country as well with some of our exports too? Yes, that's been a very interesting uh, development. So we've, we've had some difficulties at exports where we haven't been able to you know, get product out or get containers in to then ship back out. But then at the same time this year, we've seen record numbers of pork and beef exports out of the country. So sure. even despite those disruptions and delays at the ports, we've been able to um, export record quantities. And so, you know, we have to ask ourselves as an industry, where, where would we be if it weren't for these bottlenecks? You know, what would the export numbers look like? Because They've actually been really good despite all of that, but you're left with the feeling that, and, and I haven't dug into this a lot, but that exports could have been even better, you know, if we didn't have these supply chain disruptions and if we could, you know, especially on the beef side, have the ability to process those animals into beef to be able to export that frozen product or the, or, or I guess even those live animals. Um, at a rate that could keep up with demand. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a complicated situation right now. And, you know, everyone's trying to figure it out from your perspective, uh, kind of tell us what you feel like some of the major concerns are right now uh, for agriculture, you know, things I've heard a lot about are, you know, fertilizer being a big thing for the next uh, few months. Is that something that you got, have you kind of started to track a little bit for on your end? Yes, we've certainly been tracking um, input costs, you know, those that follow in the industry, you know, you kind of start at the 35,000 foot view of the industry as a whole. And, and we kind of start with the USDA farm income outlook that comes out um, in February, August or September and November of each year. And on the expense side of that equation, you know, the latest, you know, the latest forecast in September showed all categories of expenses increasing you know, relative to the last forecast in February and relative to where they were last year. And that may not even yet capture what farmers are actually going to be paying next year because those prices have been increasing so rapidly, particularly for fertilizer. You know, we've heard anecdotes from contacts in the industry expecting to pay, you know, double to quadruple 
what they did last year for fertilizer. And, and those prices had been increasing all through 2021, but you know, a lot of people for 2021 weren't worried about it because farmers had been able to you know, price those in at the beginning of the year when prices were lower. So the concern has been for quite some time now, but what does 2022 look like um, you know, going into the year and facing those higher costs? You know, yes, commodity prices have been higher than they were in a long time, but then how much do those higher input costs eat into producer profit margins um, and then also, you know, with the uncertainty of, you know, the other big story in 2020 and the years prior to that were government payments that really supported farm incomes and balance sheets. So, you know, and, you know, whether not knowing what that's going to look like, but having a little bit more certainty that we're going to have higher input costs um, has been, I think, probably when we talk to people in the industry, the largest, uh, the, the topic of greatest concern alongside, you know, in, in the midst of harvest here in the last few months in the fourth quarter, transportation costs has, has all also been a yeah. really big uh, topic for consideration because um, with all these supply chain bottlenecks, um, you know, freight rates, diesel prices have been even higher. It's just no matter where you turn, there's inflation pressure uh, in the ag sector, um, and, and and you know, except for you know at, at the start of the supply chain at the producer level for you know cattle in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, you laid out a lot of major things that are going on. And from your economic standpoint, what what do you think should be done for 2022 if these prices keep going up? What what is it? What are you kind of looking at and determining is going to be the, the best solution for this? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, you know, and, and of course, as an economist at the Fed, you know, obviously, we always have the disclaimer that these are my views and not the Fed's views. Sure. And, and even, you know, the policymakers at the Fed, monetary policy is a blunt instrument. Um, where you know there's just there's only certain levers that we can pull and push and you know interest rates money supply can only do so much um so i think that that that's one difficulty from what i face you know but if i'm if i'm looking at what could be done i think from a producer perspective um you know i think that uh, that what needs to be done on the the cattle and meat side is a little different from what we might what needs to be done on the crop side because especially for the last you know maybe year year and a half the outlook on the crop side has been a lot better because of higher commodity prices so i think there it's really a matter of just producers knowing you know their break even costs you know yes costs are going to be higher but there still might be a level that you know crop prices can hit that they can at least break even or be profitable, and so just knowing what that is and and moving when it occurs, I think is is important from a risk management um, from a, a risk management standpoint. Now on the cattle and meat side, um, I think obviously things have been a little more difficult, particularly for cattle producers. Uh, but I think some of the same things apply, but there's also so much that's just not in their control. 
Right. Um, you know, not being able to control how much capacity is available at meatpacking plants um, or where those prices are set, I think has been uh, difficult there, but just, you know, figuring out, you know, where to place cattle, what might be the best, you know, I've been reading more stories about, you know, more local uh, selling of meat, and obviously that's you know, not a solution for the industry as a whole, because we have a lot of animals that we need to move and sell and process on a daily basis. But, right. um, but I think that it's certainly a, a conversation worth having uh, from an industry standpoint as a whole. And I think from what I've seen, cattle producers have been doing a really good job of advocating for themselves and, 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 and trying to start conversations about this is what we're experiencing and this is you know how we think you know what we think would be helpful we will be right back after a short break in the december issue of the meat and poultry magazine look for our cover story on the history of animal welfare featuring temple grandin also don't miss our year in review stories covering multiple industry topics including a regulatory update an animal disease report on ASF, BSE, and HPAI, worker and labor issues, plant-based and cellular trends, and COVID vaccines and processing plants. Catch up on those stories and more when you open the Meat and Poultry magazine this month. I wanted to ask you about that. Is is there spots in the supply chain that you're seeing that can have attention that we can fix for the future costs? I mean, obviously right now the backup is what it is and it'll take months to, to deal with, but are there places that you've seen where it's like, oh yeah, that's something that we could probably work on in the future? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things um, th that, that one make it difficult and one that might be able to you know, address the situation because on the one hand, you know, these are issues, you know, all of the meat, all of the different meat categories from beef, pork, and poultry face COVID-19 in the same way. They're all facing, you know, a tight labor market, but we're really only still seeing a lot of the delays in the supply chain and, and difficulty working through these backlogs still on the beef side. And so, you know, the question that I've been asking here lately is, well, what does, why is that? How is the beef sector different from what we're seeing on the pork and poultry side? And so, you know, one thing that, that immediately comes to mind is the biology of beef production um, goes on much longer cycles than the biology for pork and poultry. So sure. it's going to take that industry longer because when a producer makes a decision of whether or not to breed a cow, um, you know, that decision doesn't really have an effect on the industry or in the supply chain, you know, for maybe, you know, up to three years down the road when that calf, after that calf is born and then finished. So, so it can take a lot longer to work through some of those backlogs and make adjustments at the farm level that then affect the cow herd as a whole. So, you know, what has, you know, one of the things that has been driving prices lower is just having a surplus of cattle on farms. There's a lot more, you know, cattle that need to be sold than we have room to process, to, to uh, slaughter and process them. And so one of the things that 
you know, could be done, you know, is just at the farm level from a herd management perspective. Um, but the other thing, um, and I apologize if you can hear my dog in the background. All good. Oh, okay. He probably have experienced everything. In this Every, everything on the podcast. We've got environment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that comes to mind when you think about the difference between the different species is just market structure. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, obviously, and, and this is just, you know, me uh, kind of spitballing ideas here of, of things that I've talked about with other economists, but, you know, haven't actually <laughs> done any research on yet. So, but just, you know, but just a recognition that we've seen differences across different uh, meat uh, types and animal species is just that, you know, in the cattle sector, it, it's very unique in terms of how animals are priced. Uh, it's not as vertically integrated as what we see on the, the hog and poultry side. Um, and, you know, because you don't hear a lot about this as much right now because hog producers were a little more insulated from the effects of COVID because, you know, we see there is more vertical integration there and there's more contract pricing in place. Um, so, you know, that might be kind of a wild idea, but, do, you know, do you start seeing more of that um, on the cattle side or is it just trying to, you know, fix the pricing structure, which is more commonly discussed, you know, both on, you know, the hearings that have occurred on Capitol Hill and, right. and, and in articles that I read and in conversations throughout the industry. So, you know, what is, is there a, is the solution from a market, market structure perspective, a pricing perspective? Is it from um, a produce, a, a herd management perspective, or is it from just how the supply train is chain is structured in general. I think that's the other topic of conversation is does meat need to be produced more locally and, and in a more disaggregate manner um, in a less consolidated way. And I think that's, you know, maybe worth a discussion, but also, you know, with an understanding that the reality is, is that the industry has become more consolidated for a reason. And that's because it's very expensive to uh, be a meat packer and processor, uh, they have to operate on economies of scale um, to be profitable. And so that's why they've gotten, you know, bigger and more concentrated over time. So, so yes, while it would be nice to maybe have the industry less consolidated, there could also be a lot of challenges there too, especially in a tight labor market. When we've heard anecdotes about people trying to start new packing plants and just not having the labor available to make it work. Um, and so, you know, either shuttering the idea or not moving forward. So I, there's just, I think a lot of challenges. Um, I don't think that cattle producers are satisfied with hearing that it'll all work itself out. Um, and I think that, so, you know, it's, it's certainly worth having the conversations and then trying to decide where the action needs to occur. Sure. Yeah, you covered, you covered a lot of ground there of, <laughs> of all the things in the beef industry. I, I think we, you know, those are things we cover on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's, you know, a lot of different challenges right now. And a lot of, you know, people are trying a lot of different ways of getting uh, around, around every, everything that's going on right now. So, um, even if it's spitballing, I think sometimes people <laughs> want to hear, I think sometimes people want to hear that they want to, you know, hear what's, what, what could be 
the next step into the future. So yes. The the next thing I wanted to to work on, Courtney, was uh, a little bit about what you've been hearing from uh, the agricultural bankers that uh, kind of report to you guys at the Fed. What what are they mm -hmm. seeing as the most important factors uh, going into 2022 from from their standpoint as bankers and in, in ag? Yeah, they have you know similar to what we have discussed. Um, they're very much focused on uh, input costs. And so going into kind of the next year, they're coming out of a year where, you know, for the first time in a long time, loan demand was lower than it had been. You know, when we asked about ag credit conditions and at the end of 2020 and, and through all of 2021, um, a majority of our ag bankers had reported that loan demand was lower than it had been a year ago. And so that is, you know, something that, you know, they had been talking about a lot, you know, concerns about loan demand, because that's how they make money is the interest off of those loans. Um, and then coming into the next round of, you know, loan originations coming into 2022, they're going to be looking at the balance sheets, input costs, how those have risen and what that means overall for farm borrower financial positions. And then um, also in certain parts of the country, drought has also been a very yeah. important factor. And that's something that uh, that I've worked on a little bit too, uh, is kind of tracking where drought is. Uh, we There's a lot of literature in ag economics about the effects of drought on crops. Uh, there's not quite as much on the effects of drought on cattle producers, uh, it, but we know that it can be even more devastating for cattle producers because unlike with crops, there's not livestock insurance. We do have disaster assistance, but you know we don't have a system like, uh, like where we have crop insurance. So, uh, so we've seen, especially in the western United States and in the northern plains, just how uh, really devastating drought has been for some cattle producers in those areas and crop producers as well. Um, <clears throat> so ag bankers have commented quite a bit, you know, on both you know climate related factors like drought and also input costs as a couple of the top concerns going into uh, next year, a year that it works that they're also expecting to see an increase in loan demand. Um, so when there's more reliance on loans, they're also going to be a bit more concerned about factors uh, like input costs that may have more weight on whether or not farm borrowers can, you know, repay loans at the same rate that they did uh, in 2021, which was at a very high rate. Right. It, is the loan demand going to go up because, you know, we have more people that are going to be back into the workforce. We're going to have more people that we're going to be able to, you know, push ag forward next year. Is that kind of what you're kind of experiencing for the outlook for, for everything in ag next year? Yeah, that's, I think that's a piece of it. I think that loan demand is expected to increase because bankers aren't expecting to have as much support from, um, from government payments. They're, they, you know, they think that we may not see as high of, of crop prices as what we saw this last year. Um, they're expecting input costs to be higher. So, um, you know, they're, they're expecting that, you know, 
farmers may need to rely a bit more on traditional forms of financing to help cover some of those expenses uh, associated with production because of those higher input costs and less support from, from government programs like CFAP, PPP, EIDL, and even, even before that, the market facilitation program. Right. You know, Courtney, before we get out of here, I, I wanted to ask you a few questions about yourself. What, what kind of drew you to agricultural economics and why you wanted to make this your career? Yeah, I so I actually started out um, what drew me to agriculture was spending time with my grandfather on his cattle farm. My grandfather was a, a cattle rancher in southeastern Oklahoma. And that was my absolute favorite place to be was with him, whether we were checking cattle, um, fishing on the pond, hauling hay, anything. That was just where I wanted to be. I developed a great love for the industry through him, a great love for the land and natural resources from spending time on that farm. And so because of that, you know, I grew up, participated in 4-H, FFA, I showed cattle, um, and uh, met my husband through FFA. <laughs> so it's always had a special place for me. My husband grew up with a farming uh, and equine background. And so I knew that that's what I wanted to major in in college. And so I actually started out in biosystems and agricultural engineering. That was my, um, my undergraduate degree was it actually in engineering because I wanted to you know, design processes and, and structures that helped keep agriculture sustainable. And so I also did my master's in hydrologic science and engineering. I was always very fascinated by water and it, the role that it plays in agriculture and, sure. and keeping it protected. But I also learned very quickly, especially in my master's, that, you know, farmers are great stewards of the land, which I've always known but they need these things to be economically feasible in order to work for them and contribute to profits without, without taking away from it. So I thought that really to do what I wanted to do, I needed to major in, I needed a degree in agricultural economics. I knew I wanted to do a PhD anyway. So I decided to switch disciplines <laughs> for, for my PhD. And I thought that I would uh, be, you know, working in an area that kind of combined both the backgrounds, maybe working in D.C. on policy. Um, and then I, uh, and I was really interested in like renewable energy technologies, like anaerobic digesters and kind of exploring for my Ph.D. dissertation kind of the policy considerations for those, how they're economically feasible for farms. So, that technology was kind of the marriage between engineering and economics for me. Right. Uh, and then the opportunity at the Fed came along and, and I was really excited to be able to work on ag kind of more from the perspective of um, monetary policy. And so, so I just kind of pursued that and it's been a great fit for me and to be able to uh, view the ag sector from a very high level at the Fed and how it operates within the economy in general has been really interesting and fun and 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 also getting to make a lot of contacts in the industry has also been something I've really enjoyed. Yeah, expand on that why you do enjoy this role. I'm sure working for the Fed, you you do get a, a wide range of people like you like you said, you do get people that are higher up in the industry, but I'm sure you talk to a lot of people that are just on the ground floor also. 
Yes. Um, I, and you know, over the last year with what we've, what we've seen from the pandemic and how it has affected, disproportionately affected different groups, uh, such as, um, you know, the, the BIPOC community, so Black, Indigenous, people of color, low, moderate income households, you know, have really been more adversely affected. And just thinking about these issues in the supply chain and what that means for those households, particularly with higher prices for food and those households spending a much larger share of their disposable income on food. So what that means, you know, we've focused a lot on that and I've had the opportunity to um, have a lot of conversations with, you know, people from, you know, different communities, you know, black farmers. I was able to uh, visit um, even some reservations in South Dakota with on a trip I took with Governor Bowman from the Board of Governors and just, you know, talk about agriculture with everyone in the industry yeah. is something that I really enjoy about this job. And of course, we also, you know, host roundtables and ag credit conferences and our ag symposium um, and, and do talk with industry people from um, different agribusinesses and, and producers um, at the farm level. But I think that it's the, op the chance to be able to talk to people, you know, from all different groups and all different, you know, perspectives along the supply chain and then brief our policymakers on that and help them understand, you know, the, you know, how they're affected in this economy has been, uh, you know, really important for me. So. Definitely. Courtney, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, I was just thinking about this after you mentioned your trip to South Dakota, what, what does your job kind of look like next year? Are you able to get out a little more back into uh, back into places, into into farms, into different places that you can you can see uh, whatever the economic impact is going to be? What's it kind of look like for you for next year? Yes, we're certainly hoping <laughs> to uh, start you know doing more in person. So yes, the the trip that I took to South Dakota was really the only the second in-person trip that I'd taken in about 18 months and next to and then shortly before that I, I had a trip to Texas and one to Kansas but um it, it kind of before everything really exploded there in the kind of September October time frame um with the Delta variant but um yes we're hoping that you know I am those on my team uh are are certainly like like many of your listeners and I'm sure your colleagues are suffering from virtual fatigue. So yes. we're certainly ready to be um, out and seeing people face to face and and experiencing, you know, what people on the ground are experiencing um, and not just virtually, you know, we, we have been really good at adapting and using the technology that we can use to be successful and effective, but I think next year, you know, we're hoping starting with a couple of meetings that we host in the first quarter, um, hoping that we're able to, you know, host those in person and that, you know, I'll be able to, you know, do more, you know, maybe traveling and, and visiting people. Um, and, and I know that my boss as well, who also is our 
uh, kind of lead expert on ag. His name's Nate Kaufman. He's been able to travel a little bit more and to meet with people uh, on the ground. And so we're kind of excited for that. We're and we're hoping that that's an example of you know the greater economy being able to you know open up and and work through some of the supply chain struggles and and getting back to more of a semblance of quote unquote normalcy you know whether or not we'll ever have that again after the pandemic but uh, just kind of you know getting people to a more comfortable uh, situation no matter where they are. Yeah, we're we're all anxious. I think for a little more of a hybrid than just yes. full time on Zoom, like the last uh, eighteen months or so have been. Yeah. So, well, Courtney, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate your insight, and uh, we'll hope you come back some other time. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yes, thank you very much. Make sure to check out the latest stories from the monthly print edition and online at meatpoultry.com. Also follow us on social media at Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, all by searching at Meat Poultry. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us. All right, that's it for this time, folks. Thanks for listening and have a great day.